0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my honor to be in dialogue with Norman Raven. We will be discussing his newly published book and memoir, Who Gets In, an Immigration Story, published in Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada, by university of regina press 2023 norman i feel absolutely humbled to be in dialogue with you today
0: all right, all right hi it's my pleasure and a great opportunity
1: to begin can you kindly tell us about yourself where did you grow up what formative events in your life inspired the adults you are today
0: Sure. So I'm uh, maybe I'm a bit bit of an idiosyncratic example. I grew up on the prairies in Calgary uh, and then studied in Vancouver for a number of years and bounced to Toronto for my PhD. So that's something we share, I think. Um, And then my academic career took me out east and then finally to Montreal. So I would say that it's uh, the academic business that kind of led me around the country but the things that you, you know, set me to thinking of in terms of formative uh, experience are are a little bit different. So when I was a, a day schooler, I went to a Yiddish school in Calgary. So I was among the last uh, generation, you know, who was able to get that kind of a primary schooling, and that had an impact, I think, on my broader Jewish identity and interests. Um, and then. On my way to uh, being a student at UBC, I had some interesting teachers there who were maybe not the most straightforwardly uh, obvious choices for academic models, but they really had an impact on me in terms of thought and also, in one case, my way of thinking about Poland. And that man was not Jewish, so he, he made a difference. Um, and I'll just say one thing more about my home life. We had a house... Um, just loaded with reading material so that that's indicative of the period so i grew up you know in the 70s and magazines were at their in some way at their peak so we probably i sometimes try to count them we probably subscribed to 15 maybe or more and then the house was full of books and the good thing i think was my folks never pointed me anywhere and the idea was find what you like And I think the outcome of that was that I felt free. So it was a free entry into all this kind of reading possibility. And, you know, the interests would take you out in other directions towards photography or film. So home life was important in that way.
1: There are many people you thank in your acknowledgments. Would you like to express gratitude and appreciation to anyone publicly? So this, this
0: book is unusual on that front, and and boy do I ever. Um, I, I did have a collaborator, though he's in a sense a quiet one in, in the book, though you encounter him at the end in the acknowledgements, um, and that was... Um, an uncle of mine who who himself had a a PhD, but it was his personal skills and his intimacy with the story that made him so useful. So his name was Avram Eisenstein. He died of COVID just as the book was going uh, to be completed, which is the terrible detail in in my acknowledgement of him. Um, But uh, the story is about his father, my grandfather, uh, so he knew the man uh, in a way that I did not. I only met him when I was a toddler. And the key archival materials that we worked with were letters largely written in Yiddish. I can translate typewritten Yiddish. I cannot really work with handwritten Yiddish. So Rome, my, my uncle, came in and did terrific translations of these archival letters. Uh, but he didn't just translate them. He supplied them with these kinds of commentaries, which were some cross between You know personal and academic and legalistic and then he got involved in research too so we entered into a correspondence about the story which is in a big fat file it's the one thing left on my desk of all the work that uh, i i i gathered up as i worked on the book so he was just a crucial involved interested collaborator as as the book progressed
1: thank you for sharing that what are the primary themes in your book What story does your book tell?
0: So the crucial story is that of my grandfather's emigration from central Poland to Western Canada in late 1930. But the specific kind of catch involved with that is that he leaves his wife and two children behind uh, and makes his way into a Canadian newcomer's life with the idea that he'll bring them over and either he was too idealistic or not too terrifically well-informed, but that proved very difficult. So the book uh, follows his uh, individual experience. He he spends about a year in Vancouver, but then the book is really set on the prairies, where he becomes, in a couple of very small Jewish communities, the religious functionary, leader, uh, ritual slaughterer, teacher, marrier, barrier, um, and then goes to work t- to try to bring the immediate family over, which uh, develops into an elaborate kind of correspondence and uh, bureaucratic and uh, interaction with all forms of Canadian authority. Uh, and the remarkable aspect, I guess, of his activities is that you could look at maybe thousands of other like stories like his, but his attack or his um, un- unwillingness to say no is, ra- is a rather special kind of a um, narrative. So uh, the full scope of the story plays that out. And then the trajectory towards the end is the thing we won't reveal in, in our discussions. But because I'm sitting here with you, you, you know the outcome.
1: Who was Lillian Freiman? Why is she noteworthy? Can you tell us about her?
0: Right. So this relates to, to uh, another nice question of yours that has to do with how this book uh, conveys Canadian women's history or simply uh, mm. or Jewish women's history. Um, so there's any number of players in the course of the narrative who uh, my grandfather corresponds with. Uh, promotes the idea that they must help him. He record, rhetorically implores uh, that they, they, they are responsible to help him. Uh, and the array of people is very broad, and it goes through uh, Jewish immigration people, lawyers, um, the provincial legislature uh, people, uh, MPs. On it goes even to the Prime Minister of Canada at the time, R.B. Bennett, but... The one who was a woman in the set uh, is Lillian Freeman, and he writes to her late. So this is a part of the story that does arrive in the late stages of the book. But he writes her what you would want to call a begging letter. But someone had explained to him the role she was playing in uh, helping people solve their immigration challenges. And this was just one of the very many undertakings of her entirely under-the-radar social activism, which took place from her base in Ottawa, where she was very well-connected, married to a very well-off man, uh, who was also an activist and well-connected. And in the case of those two, the the married couple, uh, they later had a good friendship with the prime minister, who's, who's not involved in my story. That's William Lyon Mackenzie King socialized with him a lot, but they had access to the pre, the pre, premier, uh, prime minister in in my story. That's the Conservative Bennett, and by way of all of her other social activism and community work, which was both Jewish oriented and not Jewish oriented, she uh, had access to deputy ministers. She had. Um, the ear of the, uh, otherwise very difficult to uh, get uh, immigration commissioners, and I'd have to say she wiped the floor with those characters. So it's not entirely clear as you read your way through my book uh, what her ultimate role is, but in the sort of array of characters whom you meet uh, by the time uh, the book is starting to, the ends are starting to be tied together. she's She's fascinating. She's crucial. I think she's under studied uh, and, and des- you know, really deserves her, her, um, her reputation to be e- expanded and, 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 and thought about further. She, there's, you know, there's certain kind of historical memorial plaques to her in Ottawa uh, and her house still stands there. It's become the Canadian Army's officers' mess uh, and out front of that is a plaque, of, uh, you know, acknowledging some of what Lillian Freeman accomplished in her life.
1: How does this memoir remember Prime Minister R. B. Bennett? What new insights are provided regarding him and his legacy?
0: Yes, so he's too under remembered, uh, though I don't have the same uh, feeling of you know emotional need to to remember R. B. Bennett as I do Lillian Freeman. but um you know, the other book that that should be mentioned and is mentioned in the course of my uh, approach to all of this is, of course, Abel and Troper's None Is Too Many, which is one of the more famous uh, Canadian scholarly books of the last decades. Um, And the prime minister who oversees and haunts that narrative is entirely the, the liberal prime minister of the later 30s. That's King. But I was lucky that my grandfather's story is really the front five years of the 30s. And those were conservative years in Canada. Uh, and the prime minister was Bennett. Um, and so some of the questions that are understood or thought to be sewn up in relation to King are, are entirely unknown or un- under-considered in the case of Bennett. In terms of his relationship to immigration policy, uh, his attitude towards ethnic ethnic communities. Um, you know, he was a prime minister in the Depression uh early depression years, the really deep years, um, and in that way had to deal with this kind of economic collapse in the country, and all kinds of policies were affected by that. But then the thing, too, about Bennett that suited my story so well is though he's born in the East, he comes and makes his way in Calgary, and in that way becomes representative of the, the folk, you know, Western picture that my book tries to convey, I'm mostly in Saskatchewan with Bennett I can be in Calgary Um, and it's interesting to follow and I did some work on this his relationship to the Calgary Jewish community and it was um, normal it it wasn't twisted it wasn't um, uh, unpleasant Uh, he had he had lots of interaction with his uh, Jewish constituents in in the part of uh, Calgary where he was elected so it's interesting to think about his role in some way in the background. We don't actually get a clear sense of his direct role on my story. But, of course, all the people involved are his ministers and then to his privy council, his cabinet. And they're ultimately the group that uh, makes a final appearance in my book uh, and, and resolves things or, or turns things in a new direction. So, uh Bennett's important. He, he he lurks and haunts th- through aspects of this narrative.
1: Can you describe the history of Jewish settlements in the Northwest Territories and in Western Canada? What does this memoir reveal regarding this phenomenon? Uh,
0: and it is an aspect of the book that the odd reader, you know, you can tell... They, they moved into that territory and they, and they found it interesting but challenging. So uh, our immigration story uh, is most often told in relation to our major centers. So naturally, Montreal and Toronto with Winnipeg, a far-off third. Uh, and the immigration regime, which uh, is set up in the early 20th century and develops uh, in terms of different ways of keeping certain groups out, Um Take shape, you know, as it as it emanates from Ottawa. But in the whole period, they're settling the West. So a big part of what all of that central Canadian activity is about is sending people west. Um, and I'd say, to some degree, this aspect of our history is is not it's not central. It's not necessarily well known. And in the case of Jews, of course, um, the people who went west. Are, are the lesser known narrative. Um, and they're doing it, though, you know, th- throughout those early decades of the 20th century, and they're doing it uh, as the railroad progresses in the late ni- after the late 19th century. And what w- winds up happening in, in what you rightly call the Northwest Territories, uh, once you have, in 1905, a couple of new provinces, Alberta and Saskatchewan, is... Um, a checkerboard kind of an ethnic setup where not just Jews, but all kinds of ethnics are being <laughs> rooted out West and are being, um, seeing promotion for, for this kind of immigration when they're back in Europe uh, and they buy steamship tickets that include railway tickets that take them out to the territories. Um, and Jews end up in Saskatchewan is really the, the the model for this, the archetype of this. So this is the kind of the later moment after the Northwest Territories uh, have those two provinces there. Uh, his Jews are landing in all the little places. They're they're peppering themselves in, um, and they stay put whether as merchants, uh, main street stores, uh, store owners, farmers. Uh, and by the time my grandfather gets to the prairies, so it's. Uh, 25 years plus into the existence of a province called Saskatchewan, all of this kind of population is still scattered around. Uh, And in that way, you can think of uh, that part of the country as sort of gaining its own kind of immigration patterns. Um, And that gives it its own flavor. And the, the interactions then of those newcomers with uh, indigenous communities is, is very specific and special uh, and different than people who ended up in cities. And of course, it's rural. So the character of that Jewish settlement is, is really unique.
1: What does your book's title mean?
0: So the title is always hard. Uh, the last few of my, of my books, titles dropped in at the last moment, almost in panic, because uh, sometimes the publisher has a a not good idea or a less good idea and you're trying to uh, get on top of it. So um, who gets in an immigration story showed up late in the game. We were really done with almost all the editorial work and I've forgotten the, the earlier possibilities. So I think what it does, I thought about it when you sent me some questions to think about. I think the front of the title who gets in is the, Public narrative, that is, everything related to Canadian authority and decision making and immigration regulations and regime. And to some degree, that's what None Is Too Many was most focused on. And then the subtitle, an immigration story, is what I bring to that public story. That's the individual story of my grandfather's efforts and activities. So the special drama or contrast in the book is the, the public narrative uh, hitting up against the individual story. So I think the, the title's a success on that, on that front.
1: Who was Zygmunt Lipsik? Why is he noteworthy?
0: So you've got a careful eye. As you, as you were reading the sections on, on Poland, He comes up um, and he reflects, I guess, the kind of depth of research I was willing to do on many fronts in this book, which to some degree gets hidden away. And maybe we have the notes at the back. So if you're fascinated, you can maybe see. But in the case of this man, no. Uh, uh, You have to read just the careful section where where he comes up. And it's associated with um, one of the about 30 illustrations in the book. So the publisher was really willing and and handled this so generously. Um, They're in black and white and in the early stages, they're photographs and um, some of them are family photographs that were taken in places that I can only guess about. But in the case of the man you ask, uh, there's an um, engagement photograph of my grandparents that was certainly taken in his studio in the market of their second home, that's Malava. Um, and the thing that you can do with these photographs that's so fun, if it's your type of thing, is you can really read them as texts. So on the front in the book, I, I really read the the look of my grandparents in this photograph uh, and the scrim behind them. And, you know, the fact that once you start looking at photographs of other uh, couples that were... Uh, taken in the same studio it's the same scrim so it's these different young jewish couples coming to the studio day after day uh, in the 30s but you know luckily it's the uh, original so when i flip it over it's a postcard and there is his advertisement on the back uh signals to me the name of the studio. And because of the internet nowadays, and you don't have to say this to people that listen to podcasts, um, you can find out about this studio, where it was, um, what kind of advertising they did, what his advertising looked like. So uh, I, I searched again and again and again, both in Poland and then of course um, on, on the Canadian side, for things like this that would bring the life uh, interview, so that you weren't reading history so much, though you could say this is historical detail, but rather you were, you know, really in, in entering lives, and in the case of the photographer's studio, I, I was very pleased to be able to think, here we kind of enter the studio uh, with my grandparents to have that photograph taken.
1: Who was A.L. jolief Why is he notable?
0: Different kind of character, and and he really runs through the back half of the book. Um, And he sits at the center of the immigration regime that my grandfather encounters. So he represents the civil service. He's an immigration commissioner. He's little known. Uh, So many of these people whom you're helping me talk about are not figures who have been well-researched. And they weren't always easy to, for me to find my way to them. But the thing that I clarified as I was doing the work is that my grandfather was really up against two groups of authority. Uh, one group was elected. Those are MPs and MLAs and a prime minister and deputy ministers. And it's, a, it's a big group. Um, but the other group is a civil service, and in this case, the immigration branch. Those people have jobs that last regardless of who gets elected. So they have a long uh, career line. And Joliffe uh, is in place on the Vancouver port when an important ship that arrived uh, is rejected. His, His signature is on letters back to Ottawa, from vancouver to say success we sent this ship back that was in 1914. by the time he's in ottawa in 1930 he's a very highly placed immigration commissioner uh, in other cases in other ways of telling this period another man shows up that's fc blair uh, he's he's very well known in canadian historical uh, circles He's not in my files. He's not in my story. It's Joliffe who is uh, writing letters back, not to my grandfather directly, but to the Jewish Immigration Aid Society who are his intermediaries, who bring his file forward. um, And they have to deal with him. My grandfather really doesn't. Although he sees sometimes the responses or he hears uh, what's come back. But I don't think he probably would have understood or even maybe known who Joelif was, but I have the letters by way of the uh, the archival uh, files that I found as I started to work. So I have the the letters by Joelif back to the Jewish Immigration Aid people to say, this man will not be allowed. Uh, he lied to us when he arrived. He told us he was single. Uh, we could deport him if we wanted to, and we have no interest in advancing his case. So Joliffe is the bête noire uh, in my narrative, and other people move around him in interesting ways.
1: Can you explain who F.C. Blair was?
0: So he's a counterpart. He he's he's a colleague. They uh, the two of them will see each other in their immigration branch office. Uh, any any day, every day. Uh, F.C. Blair shows up on many of the other immigration files of different people that I looked at. He has correspondence with Lillian Freeman, who I found that when Freeman asked him to let X and Y in, he typically did because of the pull that Freeman had. Uh, but um, his way of... Uh, Involving himself with these files uh, doesn't find its way into my grandfather's story, except for one aspect that I do look into with some care. That is the way the Canadian government was setting up immigration uh, entry involved uh, staffing at the Polish uh, port near Gdansk called Gdynia. Uh, and that in the new Polish state, so newly independent after the end of the First World War, there was a lot of new uh, infrastructure that needed to be set up. And the Poles were excited about this, and the Canadians were there uh, looking for ways to set themselves up. Blair was there in the 20s looking into this kind of thing, uh, and he helped uh, set up the infrastructure that uh, would then be met by people like my grandfather. That's. The- that's the one case in my story where uh, Blair is of interest, and he 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 like in a much worse way, like ben, uh, worse than Bennett. He he kind of haunts the story, but he he's not a player, and it's a relief because he's such an important role in the None is Too Many version. He's just not, not in play in my file,
1: really. Can you explain to us what the Komagatsu Maru incident was? What were its repercussions and ramifications and what new perspectives does the memoir offer on this event?
0: So uh, it's where I start in some way. So uh, I'll open the book uh, and, the, and the first line of the book is sometimes a story begins where you don't expect it to. Uh, and the point of that opening line may be a little risky is to introduce that ship, Uh, in the spring and summer of 1914 in the Vancouver port, um, I was really excited uh, to set the Jewish immigration narrative in the broader Canadian historical narrative and see if that would help me see it, you know, new uh, and appreciate other communities' uh, way of... of, Conflicting with um, a- immigration rules and regulations, and that that early story, so 1914, uh, has some overlap with the Jewish story in the sense that um, already at that point um, there's numbers of sometimes Romanian, sometimes Russian Jews, uh, and in some of those years up to the First World War, the numbers are, are sizable. They're arriving at usually an east an eastern port, uh, and the Canadian immigration people are trying to say no, uh, and usually they did get in, but it was a time when there was a certain kind of freewheeling quality and immigration regulations had not firmed up. So the thing that's happening around the time of the um, the ship that arrives with some 300 plus Punjabi uh, would be immigrés is that the Canadian government is starting to look at these incidents and try to firm up their immigration regime, so that in this case, people from parts, as they would have said it, of Asia can't can't enter, and the new uh, regulations take shape as um, uh, strictures against that. And then, you know, in the following years, they they just work further on these kinds of immigration regulations. So 1914 is a kind of a turning point, a kind of a... a, a beginning uh, of, of of firming up these rules. And they're often done through orders in council. So that's another aspect of my narrative that becomes so important, but isn't, isn't necessarily well known. Um, so this is where the Privy Council, we still do have this in Canada, uh, the Prime Minister's Cabinet, can make law outside of Parliament. So a lot of these new regulations associated with immigration uh, strictures were done by way of orders in council and almost unreported or to some degree undiscussed. And you could say it's not exactly democratic because uh, MPs are not necessarily fully aware of what's going on. Although certainly there were MPs, uh, and one or two of them Jewish, who knew this was going on uh, and were very interested in what the prime minister's cabinet was up to. So. Uh, that 1914 event, the incident of the ship, sits in the harbor for a great length of time and is sent away. Those people are not allowed into the country. It becomes a kind of a launching point for later immigration strictures that will block my grandfather's efforts when he arrives in 1930.
1: On page 62, uh, there's a quotation that I would be curious to ask you to elaborate on. It states states as follows, steamship ticket hucksters plied their trade in Hamburg and London. Some of the offers made in European ports turned out to be more fast talk Than the real deal upon arrival at a Canadian port for terms promised on one side of the Atlantic vanished by the time of arrival on the other side. Such fiascos in European emigration had a long history and played like practice sessions for the Komagatu Maru incident. In 1900, two ships carrying 2,000 Romanian refugees with many Jews among them were held at port in Montreal while officials decided whether to allow them into the country. A landing fee of $10 meant to prove that they were non-paupers was deemed unduly low while the ship was in transit to Montreal. The requirement upon arrival was raised to $25 per person making many of the Jews paupers and in danger of an immediate return trip. In this period, Jews from Romania still found their way in substantial numbers to Montreal. Romanian Jews were on the move by the thousands following a pogrom in 1899. These Fusgeirs, foot travelers, trekked on foot to Hamburg Young men and women trained for months before departing. Each group carried personal belongings, water supplies, and tents, often sporting a special group uniform. Some even had their own press and published their own poems. Can you expound on this passage for us?
0: So, you know, it's it's so packed. So thanks for reading it. Uh, The historical details are in their way so exotic um and it it takes into account your previous query about the Komagata Maru and my effort as i say to get uh jewish uh efforts to c- come from uh, eastern europe with uh, in contrast with other communities but it's a, it's a nice rare case in the book where you get a a depiction of the really early stages of jewish uh emigration to canada because my book is set you know, 40 years later. The background of these people's departure from their uh, native places is pogrom. Uh, I would say this is a more conventional idea about the kinds of people that left Eastern Europe and the Czar- Tsarist empire, uh, what their reason was for leaving and what the process was of departure. Uh, so this picture, uh, you know, in some way, may be a kind of archetypal one. I, I like it because it's so different from my own story, uh, which is one of a family that was uh, so rooted. Uh, and the, the the anecdote that's told as my grandfather departs uh, from Radzanov to go, go to Malava and get the train to head up to Gdynia is he tore himself from a house full of wailing women. So quite the opposite. You know, the idea of a, a, a young man leaving almost... Uh, at odds with his family who are staying behind. They weren't fleeing. They were staying. He was leaving. So uh, this piece that you've read, uh, you know, it it really does convey a a better known and a different kind of um, idea of departure. Uh, And this one comes with this unusual uh, kind of set of activities, almost like these young people leaving uh, are are kind of modeled. They're like chalutim. They're kabut. They're kibbutznik types. They have all this kind of cultural activity that they're uh, busily working on as as they as they go. So it's a place where the narrative kind of spins spins off in in an alternative direction.
1: How does this memoir shed new light on Polish history during the times of Marshal Josef Pilsudski?
0: Yes. So I thought about that. Because you, you keyed, me, you thought you you sent me in that direction. I'm interested in Paul uh, and the track uh, he appeals to me. Uh, he's gone. I, I, I see. When I thought about it, uh, about the time my grandfather's story ends, about about the time my book winds up, uh, and he, my grandfather, having left in thirty, misses those those final years of the. Pilsutsky period but the thing that, that really did strike me and it's in the book is that in the translation of my grandfather's letters so you have them in any number of ways in the book you have them in translation in text then you have illustrations too of the letters themselves the Yiddish language letters so if you have really good eyes uh, and a bit of Yiddish you can, you can see the originals and I do try to investigate what these artifacts, these documents are like, and they're very unusual, and they're long, and they're literary, and they're rhetorical, uh, and and, and there are many. Um, And then I did find, as I was working on the book, that there was a very substantial custom tradition in Pilsudski's Poland of Jews writing directly to him. They believed he was on their side, They believed if some non-Jewish activity in their town was impacting them negatively, that he would look into this. Uh, Pilsudski received these letters and had an assistant or secretary uh, who looked at them. And I don't know to what percentage, but answered them. So this gives you a sense of a few things. One, how the Jews felt about Pilsudski. They felt good about him. The other thing is you can read these letters because any number of them have been translated and uh, produced in different kinds of uh, academic contexts and resources. So I did that. And I did find, you know, as I was thinking about my grandfather's rhetorical style, which is remarkable and you could say strange, that there was a kind of similarity to these letters that were being written back home to Pilsudski. But, of course, I have no real way of saying i can be convinced that this explains his style is his own let's say but um the kind of letter he writes to bennett to freeman and to others uh seemed to sit within that context and it seemed to at least you know in some uh interesting way reconnect him with that world that he'd left behind
1: who was robert fork can you elaborate on him
0: So he appears in an interesting chapter where I take some more chances. That's because the chapter is drawn as a kind of a theatrical performance. Uh, People have mentioned it. I I can't quite remember back why I thought this one needs this treatment. But um, it's it's one of the rare cases in the book where I tell uh, a part of the Canadian immigration narrative that precedes my grandfather's arrival. So the book tries to stick with five years, 30 to 35. And I I really wanted my research and my way of clarifying Canada to stay there. But of course, there were things that happened prior to that that I needed. And one of them was a very interesting visit uh, by important Jewish uh, business guys Uh, community organizers, one of them the grandfather of Leonard Cohen, uh, to visit with the um, immigration representatives of the time. It's a different government. It's not my Bennett government. Um, And, of course, then it's a different immigration minister. So my guy, 30 to 35, is a fellow called Wesley Gordon. He's another story. Fork preceded Gordon Uh, And he was the character who these Jewish uh, people of note, men of note, uh, visited in Ottawa, made appointments with, had a conference with, begging uh, for increased numbers of Jews to be allowed into the country and it and put his deputy ministers into play, one of which is a very dark figure called Egan. Uh, And uh, the way that I work with this material, so it's interesting that Fork is the guy we're talking about. He's offstage, there's offstage characters in this this part of the book, Uh, but he's kind of the overseeing figure at this drama where the Jews, as I say, are begging uh, and the Canadian representatives are ducking. Um, and it's a kind of a, it's a crucial kind of um, pre-narrative or kind of a setup narrative to all the stuff my grandfather will have to deal with indirectly in in the later period, about five eight years later.
1: Who was Wesley Ashton Gordon? Why is he significant?
0: Yeah, so another of the little-known figures who's central to my story. He's the immigration minister, and he has other roles in the period under the Bennett government from 30 to 35. He's entirely unstudied. As far as I could tell, his archives sit nowhere. Um, To find out about him, I had to really read and dig far and wide. I had some lucky breaks. Of course, his material sits with other immigration branch materials in the National Archives in Ottawa, but there's nothing specifically worked out around him. But in the period in which my grandfather is pursuing this goal to bring his wife and his children over, uh, Gordon's the man, though there's the entire civil service at work under him. But my file, my grandfather's file, certainly made its way up to Gordon, uh, and the book makes it clear how I can understand that. And it's most likely, from what I I discover, that uh, Gordon discussed files like my grandfather's with Bennett. And it's most likely that Lillian Freeman proceeded to discuss my grandfather's file with Gordon. And then in that way, you know, as the book tells the story of these different figures, the people that you're helpfully asking about, you get a sense of how Canadian... Uh, civil service operated in in this in this period. And it's a certain kind of a, a hit and miss backroom quality to it. And of course, there's a hierarchy involved. And there's the people really dealing with the files. That's someone like Joe Leaf. And there's deputy ministers who also get involved sometimes. And then if you do the reach and the work, you'll find that the immigration minister himself also gets involved. Um, and one of the interesting Uh, instances where uh, Gordon is right on it has to do with a very uh, important memo that appeared uh, later in my story not specifically about my grandfather but certainly related to his file this had to do with all the men who were pleading to bring their families from Poland who had arrived in Canada by lying and saying they were single this was a cohort this was a big group Uh, and the Jewish immigration aid people were on their side and trying to move these files forward. And the immigration branch was not really wanting to. And then it would bump up to the deputy minister and then would bump up to the immigration uh, minister, Gordon. So he, he, he's a kind of he's a shadowy player. But he's, he's so important. And he's 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 tucked into all of this activity as as I portray it.
1: Who is W. J. Egan? Can you contextualize him?
0: So he's in the picture that I've just been describing, and he's he's on the stage as I present this kind of theater uh, in the in the twenties uh, with you know Fork also in the background, uh, a deputy immigration minister. So again, he's a figure not intimate to my grandfather's story, but he he he's there in the twenties, and then um, his influence retains into the early 30s he's been very he you know he's very telling because he's been involved in a lot of what was called at the time immigration schemes they used those words uh, in official canadian government documents in a positive way the scheme was not a bad thing the scheme was an effort to bring people to canada so our immigration regime was interested in bringing a particular kind of newcomer hopefully from the United Kingdom. After that, okay, from the United States. After that, there was a few other sort of openings for different kinds of less preferred people. And Egan, as a deputy minister, was often involved in these schemes. So uh, you find him as a kind of a formative player in the firming up of what was the immigration regime of of the late 20s and then, uh, you know, the 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 ways of trying to attract newcomers are to a degree made by his efforts as a deputy minister.
1: Can you tell us about the history of the Ku Klux Klan in Canada in general and in Western Canada in particular?
0: Yeah, so that's a nutty aspect of my narrative. Um, And who who would expect it? Uh, But as you would expect, Mm. it it arrives from the United States. Uh, it's one of the many things in my narrative that you do, you do have to say, oh, that, that's, uh, that's a North American story. Um, and I didn't look into the Klan beyond the Saskatchewan uh, instance. But Saskatchewan had a particular upswing of Klan membership, uh, and it predated my grandfather's arrival. But it still would have been in the air by the time he arrived in 1930, and it was really an important part of um, Saskatchewan local elections in the in the mid to late 20s. Uh, what happened was a guy came up from some embarrassing outcomes in the United States and started uh, promoting the Klan in small Saskatchewan cities. Um, but their target was not Jews, um, and their tar- their interest was not really. Immigration, uh, their bugbears were French Catholicism. So the idea of a second school system in the province made them crazy. And then they focused too, and this is a group we should mention uh, in the context of all these uh, good questions. Um, you know, uh, the, the the secondary presence in Saskatchewan, small places was uh asian chinese or, or japanese if not indigenous indigenous were to some degree on the margins but people who had small business in, in saskatoon might well be of a small um, asian immigration and the clan focused on that too so it's true that um, different kinds of people who wanted to get elected joined the Klan. Uh, which didn't necessarily mean that they had these egregious positions, but to some degree, I guess they were giving them cover, but they were looking for votes. So you see politicians doing a lot of stuff in this small town context. Um, and then through some late twenties elections, the Klan, you know, they burned a lot of crosses and they created a lot of mayhem. But the, the thing you have to say is that uh, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, in Saskatchewan, anti-black, there there were hard, hardly any uh, present, and it wasn't focused on Jews. So it's it, it's it's got its it's got its role to play, and it sets the scene for the kind of s- social uh, background that my grandfather enters. And I do wonder, uh, among the many things I don't know, you know, was he aware of this? Did he kind of get it when he came out to the prairies that this had been playing out? You know, I, I don't have a clue. I, I don't know
1: who was this book and memoir written for? Who would be considered the ideal reader and the imagined audience?
0: So it's a really helpful question. I think of it as it's a popular narrative. Um, I have two, two lives in a sense. I'm a creative writer. I write fiction. Uh, I do non-fiction journalism. Uh, but I teach at a university and I'm a, a scholar in that context. So I would say that this book is the most unusual in my uh, range of work, and that it kind of brings all of those different options together. But the voice is personal and the writing is meant not to seem scholarly. The scholarly work, and your questions are sort of teasing out the aspects of the scholarly work, is meant to be underground. And the artifacts, you know, the things like the archival files of my grandfather's letters and photographs and maps and other ways of trying to bring the life into view uh, are meant to, you know, bring people uh, uh, into the life of of the story. And in that way, the straight answer is, I hope anyone. Um, And it's then going to serve a scholarly purpose for people who are going to read it that way but it's, it's a family narrative. And a lot of the responses I do get when I talk about it publicly have to do with the way someone will say, oh, well, I have this X knowledge of my family's movement. Uh, I wish I knew this, that, and the other thing. And my thing to say is always, well, you could do it. You could, <laughs> you could pursue this kind of a project. Uh, and I have a feeling that it would be very fun to do a community-style course. Uh, where you kind of lay out the project that way. Uh, in other words, you know, recover your family story based on on what you have. It's not genealogical in its motivations, but it, it's, you know, got that kind of potential to say, you know, you've got a family story that you might think you know, but boy, can you you fill it in if you go ahead and spend, let's say, a decade Um uh, wandering through all all these different kinds of
1: resources. Who was Leonard Frank? Can you describe him? So he shows up
0: too at the early stages and um, he's one of these interesting characters who sits astride uh, different aspects of my narrative. And he's uh, he ends up being a very important photographer uh, in early, uh, can- early 20th century Canada, he starts out in a small place, Port Alberni, or they, they called it Alberni in the years. He lived there, but he ends up in Vancouver. And he takes the really iconographic photographs of the ship, the Komagata Maru, as it sits in the Vancouver harbor with these people on it that they're not going to let into the country. And the thing that was so rich for me in thinking about that is his Jewish background. So Frank comes from Germany, and at the time that he's taking photographs in the harbor, his country, uh, you know, will, be at war, will enter war. Um, and in later years, he does photography of things like the internment of the Japanese uh, on the coast. So It was another case, sort of of matches my interest in the Komagata mirror, where Jewishness and other ethnic community strife in this country as it associates with who gets to be a Canadian, who gets to be deported, who gets to watch these things happen. Frank is in this remarkable position as a photographer. And I I really didn't discover his own commentary on what he thought about these different things that he uh, photographed, but that's okay, because the photographs in their way, they tell a kind of a story. Uh, And in that way, he's not a witness exactly to my narrative, but he's the kind of, uh, you know, bystander side player who's in his own life got so much uh, happening that is, is relevant to the things my grandfather experienced.
1: Who was Marcus Berner? Why is he notable?
0: So he he is important. Um, And uh, he's opened up in a chapter which, like the one which is theatrical, uh, takes its shape a little bit like fictional narrative, but I don't make things up in it. But I feel that he's a character who should be in fiction, and in fact I found that he did appear – presented in a, an unpublished novel by a figure who goes on to become a Saskatchewan politician of note uh, in my grandfather's period. Um, so Berner is a long-standing farmer rabbi at a Jewish uh, farming colony called Hirsch. Um, and that opens up a whole uh, subject matter associated with Jewish immigration to the Canadian prairies. American uh, places too, uh, where what was set up was uh, a kind of a specialized Jewish village, uh, a special kind of Jewish farming colony uh, with infrastructure that was funded by philanthropy that was usually based in Canada, in Montreal. And Berner is uh, an Englishman who comes out and ends up being placed at Hirsch. And he's a longtime uh, farmer rabbi there. He's also the ritual slaughterer. Um, he's an important um, kind of development figure in that particular colony's long history. and he leaves prior to my grandfather's arrival, but there's a man in between Berner and my grandfather. So for me, Berner is interesting because he's a terrific character and he's important to Jewish prairie uh, settlement. Uh, he happens to have an interesting grandson, of Canadian uh, a good Canadian poet called Eli Mandel who's also long gone. Um, but my grandfather, in a sense, is his um, follower. He comes after uh, and stays at Hirsch uh, for a, 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 about a year and a half. So Berner is a kind of a pioneer figure. My grandfather comes late, but plays all the roles that uh, Berner did when he was there as the as the farmer rabbi. My grandfather in his time at Hirsch was not a farmer. So uh, Berner is kind of extra exotic uh all these years farming sections uh successfully building the community my grandfather you know he has these ritual roles in the time that he's first at a place called Dizart and then at a place called hirsch uh, but he's not farming at the same time
1: who was Lion cohen can you tell us about him
0: so he too is part of that chapter i've been mentioning jews begging uh, and uh, the the interesting uh, vocal people who who go in that uh, in that chapter and are, are seen to present their arguments to the immigration uh, representatives um, in, includes Cohen, uh, 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 an antecedent of, of Leonard, um, and he's a um, he's an important Montreal businessman and community organizer and philanthropist. You know, if Jews had aristocracy, which they didn't in Canada in that period, Cohen is top dog. The husband of uh, Lillian Freeman is kind of on his par from Ottawa. He's Archie Freeman. He he has a, a big department store in Ottawa. So uh, Cohen is important in a number of different, um, you know, Montreal Jewish uh, activities in that way. And when the Jewish leadership decides to go in beg and ask for, for more, a, a bigger quota, as they called it at the time. Uh, Cohen was a natural to go. Freeman, of course, was a natural to go. Representatives of the Jewish Immigration Aids Society came along, and this small group met with people like uh, Egan and Fork, but went away uh, distressed. Uh, not not they, they, they're not effective at, at that at that time.
1: Who was Esther Kesnick? Can you say more about her?
0: Yeah, she, she's uh, uh, on, um, on the scale of characters uh, uh, with a level of unknownness. She's the top. Um, and she takes us back to Calgary uh, and also Bennett. Um, and it's a hard story to tell. And it's, it's the one that has no other historical reference points. So I presented in my book with uh, care. Um, but the, the rumors that existed in, in the Calgary community uh, when Bennett was a representative of uh, the city uh, in the parliament were that Bennett, as a member of parliament, had a liaison with a Jewish woman, the name of... The, the woman you just just mentioned. Uh, and I won't say more because the details of it are so unusual and so absent in the historical record that I guess it's good to discover them uh, in in the context of the book itself. Uh, and Bennett, of course goes on to his uh, you know, much more illustrious activities in Ottawa. Uh, he retains his seat in Calgary, but he doesn't live there after that. Um, but the, the story uh, associated with uh, this one Jew- Jewish woman in Calgary who, with her husband, ran a grocery store and, and were chocolatiers, um, it's another way of thinking about the prime minister in terms of Jews. So the narrative includes it, for that reason, and not for its kind of, you know, gossip effect. Uh, rather, it seems to point in the direction of new ways of thinking about uh, Canadian uh, leadership and Jews. So it's, it's, it's got that odd quality.
1: How does this memoir recontextualize the life and legacy of William Lyon Mackenzie King, the Canadian prime minister?
0: Yes, yeah, so there I stay on the sidelines. He's he's incredibly well attended to by the historians. And his diaries are all available, and I looked all the way through them, and it was important to do that. Uh, and his role in the Nun is Too Many narrative is so central and crucial. And he enters the picture after my grandfather's narrative has a, has, a, has a resolution. But... You know, his impact on Canadian immigration uh, bef- uh, and and Jewish life um, before the Second World War is, is so crucial. So I would say that what my book tries to do is uh, allow a reader to think about all these things with King in some way in their minds. But I'm striving without arguing too hard to get them to think about the first half of the 30s without King, um, though he's he's a prime minister in in, in different periods. He's a long-lasting prime minister, but um, rather to kind of see the bracketed section of our history and Jewish life in Canada under Bennett. But then King interferes from time to time, and one of the interesting side stories there is his close friendship with lillian freeman who's import really important in, in my narrative so he he swings in in that way uh, and then he swings back out again
1: how does this memoir advance our understanding of the jewish immigrant aid society and its history and activities
0: so this is it's another crucial aspect of my grandfather's story that's not well researched. Uh, And I don't know the reason for that. Um, So that agency, that society, uh, existed long before my grandfather's uh, experiences, of course. And they asserted their efforts from a base in Montreal under different executive directors with some field offices. So they had an important field office in Winnipeg. And it was the first point of contact, whether in Winnipeg or here in Montreal, of uh, locals, Canadian Jews, who were writing to say, listen, I've got a problem. And they would proceed from there, whatever their narrative was. In my grandfather's case, he writes first to the Winnipeg office and encounters there a very interesting representative of the of the uh, M.A. Gray. He's got his own terrific story. He's also under-researched. Uh, Gray is kind of the Winnipeg representative. And Gray has access, uh, though he's not the executive director in Montreal. So what you start when you write that first letter to the Jewish Immigration Aid Society is, you know, the, the, the possibility that you might follow through and bring the family over whom you're struggling to bring. Gray gets involved from the Winnipeg office, in my case, sends it then ultimately, of course, to his main office in Montreal. The executive director there, A.J. Paul, a very understudied, understudied and interesting figure, has access in Ottawa. He makes Regular trips to talk with immigration representatives. Uh, he lets files sit when he's told no and he comes back again. Um, he takes a new approach when the initial approach didn't work out. The Immigration Aid Society offices, of course, worked in all languages. Uh, their, their correspondence is, is very commonly in Yiddish. So my grandfather's letters arrive there in Yiddish. They become this crucial intermediary. On their way to officialdom, uh, in a language my grandfather is not yet, uh, you know, co- su- super competent in. So, um, their their role in all of these files is is so interesting and so long, uh, long attended, attentive, um, and 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 underplayed. And then the lucky break for me was that their files were maintained you know, I don't know enough about archival history to really know what how lucky and how unusual this was, but if you have a family that came to Canada and corresponded with the Jewish Immigration Aid Society, that paper file still exists. And in my case, it was a good-sized file. So without that file, and we could have said this sooner, I couldn't have done the book. So there you have the sense through the file of the the early, deep activity of the Jewish immigration aid people retained in in what's there of the paper file. Of course, not everything has been kept, so you don't have the full story. Then you have to work from it.
1: What does this memoir teach us about the history of the Jewish Colonization Association?
0: So. they are, they are well-studied, um, and they're important. And they, they were based in Montreal, in Canada. Uh, and they had important uh, community figures uh, heading them up and helping them fundraise, uh, like Lion Cohen. And they were funded to a large extent by European philanthropists, um, Hirsch, Baron Hirsch, which the colony was named for. And they managed a network of efforts uh, of immigration reception, some of it in the cities. Um, that had to do with training and also education, but they also uh, managed colonies further afield. And they have a wide range of colonies spread out in Canada. And the JCA managed Hirsch. So in the case of my grandfather's first arrival in Saskatchewan, he goes to a place called Dysart. It's not supported by uh, the JCA. He's he's with a little independent farming community of Jews there. But when he gets down to Hirsch in the second half of his time in Saskatchewan, there he's a salaried worker uh, for the JCA. He gets his $100 a month from them. Uh, And when Berner before him decides that Hirsch needs a synagogue, he writes numerous letters to the JCA in Montreal, and he won't take no for an answer, and he writes them to uh, Lion Cohen. Um, And in that way, the JCA is kind of the umbrella. Uh, It's the boss organization. It's the source of funding. Uh, It sends out investigators and officers to these uh, colonies as they develop in a place like Hirsch. Uh, and the people uh, report back. Uh, And, you know, all of those colonies had to kind of argue for their existence and for their funding. And in in the case of a place like Hirsch, the JCA was the organizational force for keeping it going.
1: Can you tell us about Agnes McPhail? For listeners who may not have background in Canadian history, can you describe her biography?
0: So she's the one other telling Canadian woman in my narrative. Uh, You have my grandmother, my grandmother. She is not a Canadian woman in the story. You have Lillian Freeman. She's so important. Uh, Macphail appears, you know, as part of the kind of the setup uh, of my way of trying to convey what Canada was when my grandfather arrived. She she predates him in the sense that uh, she is a uh, she's the first female member of Parliament, and then goes on after that to be a member of the Ontario Legislature. So she's one of our, you know, key five early female figures who are uh, much beloved, and they have a statue on Parliament Hill, which you can visit. Uh, one of these brass things, kind of fun. They're having tea. Um, But the thing about MacPhail, so she's a heroine, let's say, on certain fronts. Um, She was a eugenicist. uh, And in that way, um, I enter the territory of her role in uh, Canada of the years before my grandfather's arrival to try to account in in as many ways as I can for how different parts of Canadian uh, intelligentsia and power groups thought about ethnics. And the sad aspect of this is that Macphail, with her statue on Parliament Hill, and in one case, her face on, a, on one of our uh, bills, um, you know, she you could read her speeches in Parliament and she sounds a little bit on these fronts like a Nazi. Uh, and the people who, who recognized that and were very worried about it were Uh, Jewish representatives. So it was interesting to look at the responses by, uh, in particular, one Montreal MP, who was for a while the only Jewish uh, member of Parliament, uh, to her, uh, and to her arguments against immigration, to her interest in sterilization to her promotion of eugenics. Uh, And in that way, you know, with these kinds of face-offs, this was another case where I was allowing myself to tell the Canadian story prior to 1930, you get a feeling of what Jews were up against, or, you know, you could say it in any number of ways, uh, what Canada was, and in what way Jews could see themselves integrating into that. Um, And uh, it turns out, McPhail's not; she's not a good case study. Uh, it's it's not a good picture uh, when you look at her 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 ideas, her her her, her eugenic uh, interest, and in this kind of thing.
1: On page one twenty two, you write as follows: uh, the the memoir states as follows: This is a cas. Kafkaesque aspect of these Canadian decades rarely acknowledged a system of authority when called upon by an outsider to explain itself, cannot do so. Even more importantly, a system that seems to be an expression of total authority, cynical and unrelenting, is no such thing. It is always in danger of being undermined. Some links weaken to the extent that the whole thing rattles apart. This is another point at which the none is too many rubric obscures the story that I want to tell. Had my grandfather heard of such a rule regarding Jews entering Canada from his homeland, and surely he did not, he would not have heeded it. Can you elaborate on this insight?
0: So thanks, Ari, for reading that. Uh, I, I do typically read that section when I talk, publicly and I uh, remember when I read it how strongly I felt uh, when I wrote it and I think in many ways it's kind of indicative of my book's unusual uh, approach to its material Uh, and also it arrived not by my conceiving of it rather it arrived by way of my following my grandfather's trail uh, via the archival letters, and then all the investigations associated with what they led me to understand. Uh, and then, two, it helped contrast uh, the impression you get from a lot of historic work, including the really the, the influential book, None Is Too Many, We just told from the top down so that you really understand the authority and the way the door shut, and in what way the immigration regime was airtight, and in what way the numbers, you know, were steered, steered away, steered back. Um, but the reality of of my story, my grandmother's, excuse me, my grandfather's story, uh, is is the opposite direction, the the uh, the effort coming from below, and the extent of the activities, and then following through all the different. Uh, outcomes that he gets by way of his efforts, uh, as the, the paragraph suggests, is that he can't know that he's having this effect, which is funny. But uh, the the effect is, as that paragraph suggests, is that the letters operate in ways. The responses they get have effects that are unpredictable. The reverberations associated with certain other people's activities are either unpredictable or, you know, surprisingly effective. So that it's something like watching the opposite of an airtight system. So here I'm just kind of uh, not not as good a way as what you read, saying a, a similar thing. The way the thing is broken up from below, uh, and I always try not to give the ending away because the book works a little bit like a detective story, and you want to find out how does this come out. Uh, and um, th- this paragraph is is so evocative of that.
1: Who was Mayor Lowe? Can you tell us about
0: Yes. So a, a close reader you are. Um, so the book has a kind of a um, a closing movement. Uh, and it has to do with the resolution of my grandfather's story, about which you can tell i'm I'm avoiding uh, revealing. Um, And there was a lot of elements in his documents that suggested that his activities affected other people. By that I mean the outcome of his file uh, drew, um, it reverberated outward in a large way, and there's a variety of possible outcomes that I wasn't able to prove. But I, I was able to trace the link between my grandfather's file mostly through the Jewish Immigration Aid Society activities and another family. And that's the fellow you mentioned, Meyer Lowe. He doesn't come into focus. I know what he was up to in Winnipeg and his file at the Jewish Immigration Aid Society is quite slight, but it's it's of interest. It's kind of a contrasting file to my grandfather's. And his outcome, his resolution in the case of uh, his efforts, is certainly related to the, that of my grandfather's. So what you have with Lowe is another of the liars, let's say. Another of this cohort that I uh, recognized that uh, the immigration authorities had been worried about, concerned about what to do. They'd come a single man, they'd left their families behind, they were trying to bring them over. Um, and I would have liked to tell more stories of that cohort and since the book has uh, completed, been completed, I have discovered a few last details about other people. But uh, Lo is the one who I, I can confidently see my grandfather unwittingly pulling along. Uh, so it's a place where the narrative kind of has an offstage uh, s- side narrative, which is, is very uh, satisfying.
1: What does this memoir teach us about Canadian economic history?
0: So this question was, it's, it's a good one for now. Um, and it really, wherever you're sitting in North America, that, that's an aspect of the book that stays relevant. And, um, the question of immigration, uh, rises and fades. Presently we live in a time of incredible migration. Um, and Canadian uh, immigration policy is—you could maybe you could say—in flux. Um, but the thing that's so notable is how uh, the way that our immigration system works is uh, linked to the, the economic needs of the country. Uh, and nowadays, we we operate in ways that bring people uh, who will invest in certain ways, and also have, of course, certain technical and professional capabilities. So when you look at that in relation to uh, my grandfather's period, you can really see that in in a very important and kind of telling way, uh, immigration is bound up with economics and and, uh, the the economic scene drives drives it. Uh, And in my grandfather's period, of course, the economic scene was was dark uh, and the Depression created a very, you know, rising nativist, outlook and people were out of work. Uh, and the idea then was one, uh, newcomers took Canadians jobs. So the feeling was a newcomer wasn't a Canadian. So when you look at that in light of um, contemporary immigrants, um, it does help you you know, think about what, what your suppositions are about what a newcomer is, how, does a newcomer become a Canadian? How quickly can that happen? Um, and in my grandfather's time, uh, in the early 30s, that was a very open question. And if you um, if you were around in, in the early 30s in the Depression era as a new immigrant, and they found you to have been uh, a cost, a burden to the state for too long a time, they were pretty happy to deport you. So... The emigration balance against your cost to the to the nation was a was a kind of an ongoing yes no uh, story, and I follow some of that in the book associated with the type of newcomer that was being deported in those years. Uh, So I, I, I like that context for a way of thinking about the book as telling. Uh, a narrative that's it's it's right up front when you open most morning news feeds or, or newspapers.
1: Can you tell us about the File Hills Indian Residential School?
0: So that that helps me um, raise an element of the book that I worked on uh, with you know with with care, and it wasn't always clear it would work out, but I I wanted. Uh, settlement on on the prairies, and especially in Saskatchewan, Jewish settlement, to take account of its proximity to Indigenous life. In this period, so it's the late stages of the prairie settlement, and it's the late stages of the destruction of uh, Indigenous uh, communities in this this part of the province, the, the bottom part of the province, um, and I have, of course only the record to go on here. Uh, I don't have any evidence that my grandfather thought of these things. But his first place at Dysart in what uh, is called the Capelle Valley, which is the prettiest part of the province, is near to places that were among the earliest settled in the province. And in that way, the earliest missionizing took shape uh, and some of the early residential schools, which have become such a, you know, a scandal in our country, were were set up really not far from where he was. And when he was at Dysart in 31, 32, uh, the File Hills uh, Residential School and Colony was very active nearby. Um, and it was one of the Celebrated ones, let's say. It's a word you put in quotes, but the idea at File Hills was that they were bringing people off the reserve and young men were training to be farmers and they would send them back out to raise families and try to make them be like, you know, Western style European farmers. And the Canadian government was selling this as a kind of a success story. And it was a really big installation not far from where my grandfather was. So it, it, you know, it was. There's lots of other ways that I try to do it in the book, but it was um, the most kind of evident thing on the landscape that as he traveled around, went off somewhere to slaughter some chickens for somebody, took the train up from another place, went over to another colony, talked to people. At one point, the colony's big building burned down. Um, you know, stuff would have been in people's minds, but it's it's a case where uh, the the proximate history needs to just be that. I can't say more because I can't say he thought about these things. I just don't know. So it's it's an unusual part of the book, uh, but uh, uh, an important part, I think.
1: What does this memoir teach us about the history of anti-Semitism in Canada?
0: Yes. So uh, this is one I, I think about, and um, it's notable when you read the book, that it, that, that is not, my, that's not my, my main focus, whereas it is in other ways of approaching this material. Uh, and, of course, uh, the immigration regime reflected anti-Semitism. So when I tell that history, and I do do it in detail, Uh, You do get a good sense of how 20s and early 30s Canada felt about Jews. And then I try to tell an alternate story, which other people have looked at. I'm not the first person to arrive at this, which was a kind of a proto-early multicultural feel in the country, which had to do with highlighting and valuing ethnicity. This had to do, of course, with bringing in ethnic immigrants and settling them. But then it had this kind of side quality of uh, enjoying their folklore and their dance and their clothing and this kind of thing. And there was some interesting folklore festivals run by the railroad Um, around the time my grandfather arrived. And in that way, that was kind of mainstream Canadian uh, feeling that was counter to that other more authoritative sort of push to keep Jews out. So I think I try uh, to tell both sides and to try to give a sense of Canadian uh, potential and variety. And then, of course, throughout the narrative associated with my grandfather's efforts, you don't get away from the immigration branch um, and their effort to stop him. But the, the interesting contrast is that when he, he does access the other power Group that is elected officials, they're pretty open to him. Um, there's a there's an MP from Regina. That's an interesting guy called Turnbull, who had the ear of the, the prime minister, and uh, that guy was a Klansman. But he stays in the narrative, uh, trying to get my grandfather's file uh, considered. So, I guess your question, which is so important and so central, you know, to the narrative and, and the time uh, uh, you know the the way the book tries to thread it in is this in, in, in a slightly different uh kind of way uh, uh th- through some of these different contexts that i'm i'm describing
1: can you say more about fw turnbull why is he significant
0: so he, he too is a bit of a mystery figure <laughs> um, and um, he, he was a long, you know, a long-time conservative MP. He's one of the numerous people in that context elected that my grandfather tries. He tries other MPs too. Uh, Turnbull, uh, he, he shows up in the, in the, in the archives uh, more than others that my grandfather tried, trying to help. So... What can you say about this? Uh, I don't know enough about him as a as a personality to fully understand this. Uh, he surprises in the sense that some of the things about him would would say to you he wouldn't be the type of person to do this. But then, f- moving further into the national archives here, um, you know, you find the way these backroom discussions operated. And uh, the MPs talking uh, with the Prime minister, Prime minister sometimes, with the Immigration Minister sometimes. So uh, Turnbull is interesting from that perspective, too, because it, it gives you uh, a, a, a case study in how these uh, backroom discussions operated. I wasn't able to follow his traces as fully as I would have liked. But he, he runs through the narrative in, in, in intriguing ways.
1: Who was A.J. Paul? Why is he important?
0: So he came up as we were talking about um, the JIAS, the Jewish Immigration Aid Society. Um, he's in play throughout my grandfather's activities. He's the executive director the whole time uh, based in Montreal. Um, he He writes many many letters he's he's directly on the file uh, which reflects how these immigration aid people worked seemingly endlessly uh, and without without dissent uh, and and with willingness to you know you know stay focused and return and, and complete the story uh, and he too he, you know this is really a, a number of the people that you've asked about um they, they are entirely forgotten, <laughs> or if not entirely, they're almost entirely forgotten, and it shouldn't be the case. Um, he, will sh- you know, he will show up, Paul will show up in other works associated with the immigration period focused on Jews. But, you know, it was so challenging with some of these figures like him, because you'll go to a, a, a text where you think, okay, well, they'll, they'll encounter Paul here. But he'll be in the index three times, and the references are uninteresting. So um, the 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 kind of activity that he undertook here, um, from his office on on Saint Laurent, or as they would have called it then, Saint Lawrence Boulevard, um, really needs it, it, it needs recovery. Uh, and I, I I did what I could, and what my grandfather's file needed too. So he's he's one among the people that. You, You've asked about, he, he needs further recovery, AJ Paul.
1: What is this memoir's contribution to the history of Canadian immigration?
0: So, you know, we, your questions have helped us think about that one in, in sort of uh, focused ways. Um, and when we started out, my way of kind of setting myself apart from other kinds of studies, um, that, that, that really... Uh, you know, is key. Uh, And the feeling that I wanted to tell it from the individual up, rather from the authorities down. Though I, of course, had to do the authorities down part to make the picture come clear, to come into focus. Um, And I think the bookends maybe, too, I could say a bit more about, they're Polish bookends. So most of the books set in Canada, but the opening section is before my grandfather leaves in the late section is a kind of return to Poland. Um, And this comes of my own specific feelings about pre-war Polish Jewish life and my my own family's uh, rootedness and my own travels in Poland. Um, I felt that uh, I wanted this presentation to convey who these people were when they were Polish. Uh, And I think that's a story that has been certainly neglected, and in many ways, in stereotypic ways, dismissed, and people are very satisfied with that. Uh, so this book does. Uh, who gets in pushes back, and I try through my opening and my closing to um, convey immigration through the the eyes of the departure, and then. The idea of those lives, those Polish lives, as really being valued, valuable, uh, and not something on the Um, fringes—they're the the brackets to this Canadian newcomer life that the that the book is about.
1: What does this memoir teach us about Canadian women's history?
0: So that one, I think we we've done it well and. I'd, I'd refer us back to my comments about Freeman and then, much less important, Agnes McPhail. So the, you give me an opportunity here to say a bit more about uh, Lillian Freeman. Um, so the way that she's often described is as, and it's true, the most important Jewish woman in Canada at the time, but it's interesting to say Jewish woman, because maybe you would want to say Jew, but of course there are Jewish men in Parliament and they're Jewish men of, of you know great financial and uh, community organisational success. So she's an interesting kind of competitor for uh, the kind of uh, importance and, uh, and influence that you could think of a Jew having in that period. And so I, I should just say that. Uh, her influence ranges all the way back to the First World War, and her activity after that has to do with the efforts to bring uh, Ukrainian Jewish orphans to Canada, a very substantial operation. And then there's this range of com- community efforts and activities in Ottawa that contribute to her influence, and then later on, this this really strong involvement uh, in, in immigrants' lives. And the other thing that she... Um, uh, created in Canada is our tradition associated with um, veterans' affairs and commemorative affairs uh, for veterans. Um, so that she's uh, the person that started the uh, custom of wearing poppies uh, for commemoration, uh, and she borrowed that from Europeans, but she fostered it here in the country. So some of the things that she did are are fully, you know, ecumenical and. Uh, public oriented, not associated with um, Jewish community.
1: What is this memoir's contribution to Canadian Jewish history and Jewish Canadian history?
0: So uh, I, I would say I, I, I try hard, and I've mentioned it in a few different ways, to uh, get Jewish ethnic history or Jewish um, newcomer history to overlap with other communities. Uh, so that we think of it in a kind of a more uh, open-ended way, and the effort to tell immigration history through the position of an individual—I think that that hasn't been done in in in, in very many ways. Um, and then the thing that you ask about the audience to do that, all the research associated with that, but using a personal voice. So those are kind of an odd grouping of. Uh, strategies, um, and the personal voice of course is, is meant to, to draw the, is hopefully going to draw the reader in. but uh, my attachment to the narrative then, to the, the way of telling immigration history it, is really very intimate and direct. And uh, I keep myself out for the most part. though so there's a few uh, s- scenarios where I do enter um, as researcher. Uh, and in that way, I convey the experience of, of researching this kind of uh, history. So there's a couple of chapters about going to the archives in Ottawa and what, what that process of recovery is like. And in that way, I guess, uh, the idea of this book is a kind of a depiction of, uh, re- of, of that recovery uh, is, is, is front and center. It doesn't try to hide um the challenges associated with this kind of immigration history or um uh make it authoritative
1: as we bring today's dialogue to a close can you kindly tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book
0: so it's, it's a good one uh, i like the opportunity um uh, I, I have been saying when people ask what I'm working on next, is that this one kind of emptied me out, uh, which I never have said before after finish, finishing a project. But it's a good one because uh, it was such a long-standing, satisfying, uh, shifting, uh, both personal and scholarly uh, effort that the emptying out is is fine. I am going back to Poland, so something may develop there. And I am going back to in in my visit to my grandfather's birthplace and his departure points. Uh, and I don't know quite why I'm doing that, but I'm doing it. And I'll I'll give a paper on a Yiddish writer uh, at a conference in in Lodz. And in that way, I'm sort of you know redefining my connections to Poland and. Uh, there might be new new directions that I, I take from that, and then I am finalizing a, a little chapbook of a long short story. So there's the Polish project and that some smaller fiction project that I'll wind up this year.
1: I wish you the very best of luck.
0: All right, thanks for everything.
1: Those the the upcoming endeavors sound phenomenal, so I, I absolutely wish you my heartfelt very best in those undertakings.
0: I I appreciate it, thanks.
1: And as well, thank you for all the silent sacrifice that you endured and invested in this project for the benefit of wisdom itself and for the benefit not only of all humanity, but also of all your present and future readers.
0: Thanks, thanks for saying
1: so. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I'm your host on the new Books in Jewish Studies podcast today, Ari Barbalat. I've been in dialogue today with Norman Raven. We have been discussing his newly published book, Who Gets In? An Immigration Story, published in Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada, by University of Regina Press, 2023. Thank you.